Hello, and welcome to Rugby World Magazine's One Game at a Time, the podcast that allows us to get into the minds of some of your favourite rugby players. In this episode, I speak to James Simpson Daniel, a man regarded by many as one of the finest attacking threats England has ever produced. We'll look in detail at his debut against New Zealand in 2002 and chat about so much. His duel with Jonah Lomu, Sir Clive Woodward's game plan, missing out on the Rugby World Cup of 2003, injuries and what he takes away from an international career which didn't flourish like he would have wanted. The YouTube highlights of the game are attached if you want to watch along, as well as the clip of him rounding Lomu for the Barbarians the previous May. It was a genuine pleasure talking to James, and this interview ends up being a wonderful bit of insight and honesty from a man so well appreciated by the rugby public. This is One Game at a Time. Hello, James Simpson, Daniel. How are you? Yeah, keeping well, thank you. Home um, home tutoring is is a challenge, but uh, we're doing a lot of PE in my house, but we're fine, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking to me. Uh, you know the deal, one player, one game. Hopefully we can delve into your mind and pick out some ideas, some memories, understand a little bit more about you and the game that we all love. You said to me previously that you weren't someone that enjoyed spending a great deal of time in the past. Is, is that true? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, you can always look back. Um, I'm not one of those guys that lives day by day. Somehow you can't help but look back. But at the same time, I did find that when I was playing my, uh, my rugby in my career, during my career, I'd look at the previous Saturday. Then once that was done, it was done. It was on about the next week. And and I wouldn't even worry the following week what happened the previous. So um, I learned from the mistakes and then just move on. When you were playing, how much tape analysis was there? I know there's a fair amount nowadays, but did, did as a squad, did you used to pour over VHS back, back in 2002? To be fair, we did at the start, only because I think the video analysis had just started to, to become a lot, more, a lot more prominent then. I think if you'd have gone 10 years before that, probably mid-90s or whatever, I think you'd have probably struggled on the on the analysis front but it was almost like we were the first generation when i began of having the proper software and people getting very excited about how you could cut clips quite easily on the on the computers all the problem was then was teaching the old folk how to um <laughs> how, to, how to be able to do it people like andy deacon and never touched a mouse before so um that was the biggest challenge but it was certainly taken a lot more seriously then the game we're going to talk about you're very kind enough to, to go back to your official debut uh it was against new zealand back in 2002 you were 20 years old you hadn't been playing top flight rugby very long how, how was that to manage oh gosh you are you're challenging the uh, the memories <laughs> the memory process here, but I think I think the thing is here, Sam. For me, this this felt very. I'm not comparing it. Everyone's debut is very special to them. Mine was special but terrifying at the same time. And I think the reason that we had that is that anyone can remember that far back. I'd had a, a previous experience playing against the um, the Barbarians against uh, Christian Cullen and Jonah, obviously with my opposite man. And I think, you know, I was very fortunate in the first game to have scored a try against Jonah. And immediately when it was announced that it was going to be myself playing against him again for my first cap against the All Blacks at Twickenham, and everyone saying this is going to be a very different Joan Lomu, very different side to what you played against. They've been on the booze all week in the, in the build-up to the Barbars game, which no doubt they had, but they'll be taking this one a lot more seriously. The press just licked their lips and thought, let's go to town, this young kid taking on proper men's rugby. And... And the build-up for that was absolutely terrifying. But I thought the build-up for the I thought the build-up for the first game against Jonah was hard. The build-up for the actual my first test, you know, let alone my first test against the All Blacks against the Hacker at Twickenham was 
you know, it was it was a terrifying blur. Let's put it that way. I mean, you mention it there. People who are interested can quickly flick onto YouTube. I think it's it's listed as Sinbad's magic moment on YouTube, and it is it is quite delicious. I have to say, as as a as a rugby moment to announce yourself on the international stage to round one of, if not the most famous name in rugby at that time. Did you think then, I mean, in the lead up to that week going into the England versus the New Zealand game, did you, was there any part of you that thought, I wish I hadn't done that? Um, there, was, there was every part of me wishing the game that I hadn't yet played was over and then life was moving forward. It was one of those, you know, I was delighted to have had that moment that I had against the Barbars. But I think the thing that I'm always very, very quick to say about that is, it's the only reason it's talked about is because Jonah was the world's best player and people still say it now he changed the game of rugby forever and I think that the reason that people were so desperate to talk about how you know good my try was and whatever else was because it was against him now if everyone did that for every single try he scored against against players that he played against you'd be non-stop talking about him it's because of the profile that was Jonah if I did that against another average winger no one would have really taken it too seriously. And, and in a funny way, yes, they'd have probably, like the Tristone said, you know, it's quite confident from a young kid, but it wouldn't have been the same level as what I've spoken about. So I was, I was more than aware of what was coming. But I, as I said, I'm the first to hold my hands up and say, look, I got very fortunate that I got round him. You know, I'm happy I scored my try, but it's because Jonah's the best player in the world that people give me this time of day. Did Jonah Lomu talk at all out on the pitch? It struck me as perhaps he, he wasn't a terribly verbal player. Did, did, he, did he say anything to you when you met out on the pitch at all? No, he didn't, actually. And you know what? I, I actually quite like that. One, because had he been trash-talking me, I'd have probably absolutely crapped my pants. Um, <laughs> but even more so. But I think as it was, I think that's the class of the man and the way that he played the game. His talking very much was in his thighs and his body and his way he played the rugby. You know, he played it so physical. And I loved that about him. You know, all he did was, even after I'd scored my try, you know, it wasn't like, right, I'm coming for you, kid, and I'm going to bash you in. He just, every time he got the ball, he'd just run so hard and he'd just be so difficult to tackle. And again, we're no doubt going to talk about it in a minute. You know, add me to the long list of people that miss tackles on him because you know, that's just the way it rolls. But when it happens the other way, he's getting watched. He's getting microanalyzed every single time he touches a ball or he's defending because of his presence. Whereas you can add me to that long list of those that have missed him um, with everyone else. Let's talk about the, the other side of the build-up to the game, because obviously, you know, it, it was 2002. There was, a, there was a World Cup on the horizon in 2003. Can you remember who, who your rivals were in, in the England team? Who, who were the people that you were sort of vying for a, a position, you know, sort of long-term, heading into 2003? Can you remember the names of those players? I think the guys, some of, some of the players, obviously, that I played alongside, I'd, I didn't necessarily look at these guys as my opposition. I almost looked at the likes of Ben Cohen, Dan Luger. Ian Bolshaw was more of a fullback back then, but he could cover wing if it was needed. Jason Robinson had obviously just come on the scene. You had, was it Phil, Phil Christophers? Phil Christophers and also a bit of a Josh Lucy, I think, was just. Yeah. Um, so that was basically the crux of the, of the back three. Now, I know Austin Healy was more of a halfback, but again, he was another mm. guy that, when they were looking for squads, could he slot into the wing if it had to be what well, he could. So mm. it was mainly that group and that core, and I apologise if I've missed someone, but 
um, it was a long time ago. But that's kind of the, 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 the group that I'm thinking of that were my competition. And when you say about you didn't think about them as competition, was it like that? Was it a case of just focusing on what you did and, and, and not worrying about good performances from other people? You can't do anything about that, can you? Well, to be fair, I don't know if that's what, I don't know how other people's mindset were. And I certainly know of individuals out there who I won't name that would look at others and think, oh, it's probably good that they've had a bad game, so that helps me. I think the way that my mindset was, my game take, takes care of itself. You know, if I'm playing good rugby, I can live with that because it means if I'm playing good rugby, other people know I am. And if they don't want to pick me off the back of it, then fine. And I, I also found that out a lot more in my later career when I knew I was playing good rugby and I still wasn't getting selected internationally. Um, so I think that was my mindset from the start of my career. And I kept that because I, I just thought very simply, if I'm playing bad, I can't get picked. You know, I, I expected not to be picked if I was playing badly. But if I was playing good, solid rugby and I was confident with where it was at, then the selection should take care of itself. And if it doesn't, I often found it, I was okay living with that, knowing that I'm playing good, I can live with not being picked because everyone else will be the talking form, which they did in the media. Mm. Um, so I just concentrated on my own game. Let's have a look at these two teams. I'll read them out. Uh, 15 and fullback for New Zealand was Ben Blair. Uh, on the right wing, or wearing number 14, was Doug Howlett. Uh, 13, Tana Wamanga. 12, Keith Lowen. Uh, 11, Jonah Lomu. Uh, 10, Carla Spencer and partnering him at Harpac, Steve Devine. The front row was Joe McDonnell, Andrew Hoare at Hooker, Case Muse, the other prop forward. Ali Williams, Keith Robinson in the second row. Tane Randell, captain the, the uh, all-black side. Marty Holler, the uh, man having a very impressive uh, season at number seven. And Sam Broomhall at number eight. There, there were seven test debuts in that New Zealand side. And I think if, I, if my memory serves me correctly, there was a little bit of talk leading up to the game about the fact that maybe this New Zealand side were a little bit green, were a little bit inexperienced. Can you remember as an England team, did, did you feel as confident as you ever had going into a match against New Zealand? No, I, I think where I was very fortunate is I was, a, obviously I was a youngster and I was thrust in the, in, in the middle of this, you know, what turned out to be World Cup winning side and I was fortunate to have senior players completely surrounding me and people that I'm talking about that mentored and helped me. You've got the likes of Greenwood, obviously you've got um, Tins, Benny Cohen was awesome to me, Dorse, you know, obviously Johnny was, he, he led the backs, but even in the forwards, things like, you know, I remember in training just being standing there doing my stretches by myself and Jono comes up and, you know, he wouldn't remember it, but I remember just coming up and standing next to me and just, you know, stretching along, just having a, a general chit chat. You okay? You good? And I think that type of thing meant a lot to me being a youngster. Um, but I was also blessed to have the likes of Phil Vickery, Trev, Trev Woodman, who are my club teammates around me. Um, you know, I was incredibly blessed to be around that squad and that side. But you mentioned the opposition. You look at that back line, it's pretty tasty to me. I didn't have that sensation, that feel of, let's catch them while they're cold at all, because I was so terrified, not terrified, I was so nervous slash excited about what was coming, and I say excited very tentatively, about what was coming with Jonah. And equally, you've got my, my idol there in Carlos Spencer wearing the 10 jersey. Mm. So um, not, mm. not to mention W. Howlett on the other wing. And, you know, that's a pretty, as far as I was concerned, it's the All Blacks. It was going to be hard. We were never, ever considering this was going to be an easy game at all. And, and never imagining it was going to be a given that we're going to win. So, uh, and I think the result proved that. 
the England side, 15 and fullback Jason Robinson, yourself uh, on the right wing, uh, Will Greenwood, Mike Tyndall in the centre, Ben Cohen on the other side, Johnny Wilkinson and Matt Dawson. Front row, Trevor Woodman, Steve Thompson, Phil Vickery. Uh, second row partnership, Martin Johnson, captain the side. Danny Grucop partnered him in the second row. Lewis Moody, uh, blind side. Richard Hill, open side. Richard Hill played in his 50th game for this uh, for this uh, occasion. And Lawrence Delalio at eight. That list of names is, is sort of synonymous. A lot of those names are sort of synonymous with what, what ended up happening a year later in 2003. At this point in 2002, how much talk amongst the camp amongst the England camp, was there about 12 months hence and, and the World Cup? No, for, for me, the, um, my memories of being around that squad is it wasn't almost talking about World Cups and we're going to do this autumn test, then we're going to win the Grand Slam, then we're going to go and win the World Cup. It wasn't like that. It was almost taking the series as they came along and we're taking them in blocks. So each series, the block series was, was one challenge, then you're on to the next thing, which was the Six Nations. And I remember the autumn being a challenge in itself. You know, I remember start of that um it was a case of how, how are we going to do in the autumn you know three from four whatever we played I can't remember if we played three or four that autumn um but that was the first game obviously I was involved in New Zealand Australia and then it went um South Africa um but uh but but for us it was about that that block initially um so I don't remember anything being spoken about the World Cup at that moment in time let's have a look at the uh, at the highlights and, and and see what if anything comes back it, it does seem perhaps playing this back it'd be interesting to hear what what you think as regards um whether it seems like a long time ago or or, or not a long time ago does that make sense <laughs> it, it, no it abso- look it absolutely does make sense and I remember these bits now get the heart pounding because this is the stuff that makes you a little bit nervy and and it starts to bring back the memories because, as I say, I've not watched any of this, this back now. You know, this build-up, the way we're running out onto the, onto the pitch. This isn't something that's familiar to me as far as um, having watched it. But living it, you know, that that visual camera could be me running out now. Um, and I think that's something that does does start to bring it all back. I made the decision when the hacker was going to be done beforehand. I think I was talking to my dad and my brother that I wasn't going to watch the hacker. Funny enough, I wasn't looking at them when they were doing this because I didn't want to get intimidated. Other people want to channel that. And bear in mind, I face other hackers later in my career, which I would watch. But this one, for my first cap, I decided I was just going to stare behind the posts and look up at the stand in the background. Um, mm-hmm. And that's that's what I opted to do. And that you can see me there, actually. I'm looking up. And I just didn't want to... I, I was aware of it going on down there, but then I think it was about halfway through, um, swing low starts to be sung in the background. And that's what kind of snapped my attention and my focus. And that's really what, uh, again, just talking about it out loud now, that's what I remember when I closed my eyes. Did you, did you have a, a routine to, 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 to a game? Did you like to do things in a certain way before a game started? Yeah, I did. I did. All my build-up to my matches were very much the same. I'm, I'm, a, I'm not OCD, I don't mean it that way, but I'm all about routine, habit, lucky sock. What I was going to do was just the way that I was in my mindset. It's, it was familiar to me and what made me comfortable. Yeah, an, an opening salvo from from Jason Robinson. I mean, just talk about that. You see him running various different patterns. I mean, the the, the defense didn't know where he was going. How, what was it like for for offensive teammates to know where Jason Robinson was going to end up? Well, because because he was fairly new onto the scene at that moment in time. The only thing we knew him from was rugby league, really. Um, so I think what happened when when Jace did come along, it was more a case of you allow him enough space so that he can run, do his thing. And then when he wants to give it to you, that's when he when he chooses to. 
if you get too tight to him, what he's trying to do is he's trying to stand up a defender in front of him, get them flat-footed and use his explosive pace to bounce off the mark and suck the outside defender and giving you space on the outside. So the challenge when you're playing with him is don't get too narrow to him and allow him to try and eat up the space and draw you in and draw the opposition in. You can see the ball being worked out here. Will Greenwood making a, a few inroads, a few early bits of, of pressure. That sounds an obvious question, but did, did your heart start to race even more as the ball was working its way out towards you? Can you remember that sort of feeling of a first touch of the ball? I think from the from set pieces, things like line outs, um, scrums, we had almost like a, a routine of phases that we were going to do. So we knew we were going wide off a first phase line out you then might go back to the middle second phase and you know you're going wide left third phase you almost think about your job for those three phases right first first phase going wide i might get the ball if i'm not it's my clear out we've got to make sure we get the ball as soon as we retain it right you've got to drop back into position so i'm realigned quickly talking to the other forwards outside me or backs around me and then it's third phase and then you're breaking into rugby mode so it's not really a case of i'm nervous the ball coming it's about right what's my job what do i need to make sure i'm doing here and that was the main thing on these, um, these, we call them sets. That was the main thing on these, say, three-phase sets or whatever it might have been. And certainly making the most as well of, of, of defensive pressure. Out on the wing, how, how much of, uh, of a job do you have in those defensive sets to get up and, and get in people's faces and, and put the pressure on? Well, a lot of the time it can be organising those around you. So the way I used to find it, I used to almost commentate and like to talk out loud to others to know where my positioning is. So if I'm with Tins as my 13, I'm looking at Tins and going, you know, Tins, Lord, whatever you want his nickname is. <laughs> I would be like, Lord, you've, you've got second last man, you've got third last man, we're drifting. And then that means if I know his, he's got the third last man, I know I've got the second last man, then we're drifting together until we get to man on man, then we can go and make the tackle. So it was almost like this, um, this talking out loud just to reassure each other. You know, if I've got a, an open side flanker who's defending in a wide channel, what I don't want to be doing is screaming at him. You know, I'm just watching this play fold out. Um, I, what I don't want to be what I don't want to be doing there is if I've got the flanker that's inside me in a wide channel, I don't know who he's got. It means I don't know who I've got. He might then bite in, which gives a massive um, defensive overlap. Uh, which which has obviously caused us to be more vulnerable. One of the things I noticed from that that first phase, and, and here we see Jonah Lomu's uh, imprint on the game immediately, and and again it, it must have been incredibly difficult to to defend that because it wasn't just one man who had to stop him. You had to you had to bite in on on Jonah Lomu, and you can see the the benefit that New Zealand get from that. Yeah, and the point is there is having him as such a danger. You can use him on that crash ball where you're sucking all the defenders. And if you can get really recycled, quick recycled ball and you go to a wide channel, the guys in the wide channel are going to be completely, completely outnumbered and it should be a walk-in, provided they use their hands. But what that then does is it opens them up to use the same play later in the game where they don't use and they use them as a decoy and then they go straight across the front into a wide channel and then obviously you've got a chance to score. It was a, it was a process which was known to you and yet there's often so little you can do about it. Does that make sense? Even though you know it's coming, you, you've just got to, and you can see, you know, chaps chucking, chucking themselves in the way of, of a big frame. There's, how, do you, how do you stop low mood? I mean, did you talk about it in, did you talk about it in practice? Did you sort of, in, in practice, in the sort of lead up to the game, say, right, we're just going to focus on trying to stop a man as big as Jonah Lomu? Well, look, on, on his try there, what happened is we had man on man meaning, I got second last man. Um, we always use our fullback to go to the last man, which was Jace. 
but then it's about anyone else at spare scrambling to help him which is as you can see that's what tins was doing so what we were trying to do is close the ball out before it could get to him but then if it does get to him hopefully he's going to be getting clattered by two men which is a jace you know which is complete mismatch in size and then possibly one other and that was tins trying to help out on that occasion um but but i think the plan was in training i remember um phil larder it was almost like, look, go for his ankles. Try and get him so low. But the problem you can sometimes have with Jonah is when you go low like that, because he's so big, he can hand you off while you're going low at the ankle. And then you're, it's a very difficult tackle to make, which is, you know, it's, it's the breed that he was. It's the, it's the specimen he was as an athlete and the power that he had on the wing and why he then changed the game of rugby to, to have bigger wingers and bigger backs. Um, it was a big challenge in itself, put it that way. Go, going behind early on, who who talks underneath the post? Do you remember who, the sort of voices were involved? I mean, again, I, I assuming Martin Johnson, but there might have been others. Yeah, Jono, Jono, it depends on the moment of the game and the moment in time and who's feeling what type of buzz. You know, Jono would, would talk um, when he had to. Uh, Johnny would talk when he had to. And, uh, and, and even, you know, there would be other individuals like Will Greenwood and obviously Backy when he was playing. Backy wasn't playing in this game. Um, so it would depend, having a lot of leaders in that side particularly, you didn't want everyone talking behind the post, but you would have, you know, a combination of guys that would be doing the talking, the important talking, and everyone else just listens in and, and, uh, and, and focuses. This combination that we're just seeing here that, uh, that, that almost sees England go sort of 60, 70 metres was actually sprung from, from a great bit of work from Trevor Woodman. And, and watching these highlights, I, I'm kind of reminded just, just what a good loose head Trevor was. Well, he was one of those guys that never got as much credit as he possibly could have. He was absolutely brilliant in the loose. He was powerful. He was explosive. And, uh, and as you say, he started that back then, but then he linked that pass to me before I got tackled on the right-hand side. He just had that ability about the way he... Um, he played the game. He played it almost like a back rower in a in a prop shirt, and he was incredibly good in the in the scrum as well. Yeah, we we, we see it here, and it's sort of a hallmark of, of of the way England under Sir Clive Woodward wanted to play as well. It was it was about asking questions from everywhere on the field. Yeah, and it was almost um, you know it was think correctly under pressure to quote to quote Clive, you know, teacup and then um, CTC crossbar touchline crossbar meaning. You're looking, you're looking up, out, in, um, so that if it's on in front of you, you have a go. You just go from wherever it is. If it's on, you go. And did you think that with a team like New Zealand, it, it was about exerting as much pressure on people like Carlos Spencer there, an, an error there that, that, that sort of was almost unforced? And it, it's about that. Against really good sides, and again, we see Trevor Woodman making a real nuisance of himself. It's about exerting pressure as hard and as fast as you possibly can. As you say, unbelievable break from um, from Trev there. That was the thing about his uh, his game was just remarkable, really. When you think back, um, line breaking off the back of, of the line out, you know, the way that a winger or centre is meant to. Um, but, but yeah, I think on this instance, they certainly felt that maybe Carlos, if he could get at him, might have rattled because they know that if you get it wrong, just how good he is. You know, he is he's just such a force when he's flying. So it was almost like, can we put some pressure on him and see whether those little errors might go in our favour rather than your... You know, you might normally have a go-to man like Mertens. Um, that oh, that was the other thing that you're always encouraged to do before it was on, back yourself. But you can't help but feel that might have been the wrong decision. Yeah, Dawson with the with the up and up and under, about five metres out. Again, pretty unusual in, in, in any stage of, uh, of the game to sort of see that sort of opportunity. But as you say, just trying to just trying to catch people out. And and uh, I don't think it was a judged in the end to be a block. And uh, but England still in the twenty-two and, and still with the pressure. Um, did, 
did these breaks in play and these moments, especially on debut for a young player like yourself, did, 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 did it give you a little bit of time to sort of centre yourself a little bit and, and sort of uh, breathe, I suppose is the best word for it? Yeah, I, th- I think probably more breathe. Because I, don't th- I don't remember any of this dead time. You know, I don't remember a lot of this. I think it is more by the time you got back to where your position is, caught your breath of air and then gone on to your next job, the ball's coming. Um, you know, find out what the next play is because during dead time, you're not just chilling out. You're talking about what we're going to do off this strike play. So again, that was a preempted call. You, you know, you do work out during the stoppages what you're going to do when we get the restart or what we're going to do when we get the next play. And again, Clive wanted you to play without fear, which is probably why he selected me in, in my um, early days and whatever else because, you know, it's fearless as a young kid. Um, but then he loved building the build, build the scoreboard, like what Johnny's just done there with the um, drop goal. Yeah, and and a big part of that was was a, about building that confidence on the scoreboard as well, surely. Yeah, building the confidence, building the lead, being ahead that breeds confidence really at home in front of the the home crowd. You know, stay in front if you've got a chance to get in front and stay in front, extend that lead if you can. Can you put into words what Twickenham was like to play at? I mean, you played in front of some, some, some wonderful crowds in your career, but can you sort of put into words what, what it was like to play at Twickenham? This, this particular day was incredible. You know, I, I remember it specifically probably because, yes, we had a really good crowd against the Barbars because of the star-studded side that they, they brought to, um, to Twickenham. But I think on this particular occasion, it was, more, um, it was more treated as a serious test match, if you want to call it that. And I think that was what, I'll kind of remember from today, it felt like a proper, this, is, this means business, this game. You know, this is the All Blacks coming to, coming to us and the crowd was just, a, I think it was a sellout, but it was, the atmosphere was just immense. A huge tackle in the middle on Dawson. And I think if memory serves me correctly, this ends up to, with, uh, with Dougie Howlett. It goes backwards and forwards and Umanga gets his hands on the ball and then Howlett shows real pace. And this was, I mean, you talk about, we talked about Lomu, but Doug Howlett was a world-class winger. He was, and I think that the thing for Dougie is that, you know, he, he knows he got enough credit in his career, but I think because Jonah was there, it was almost, he wasn't overshadowed, but had Jonah not have been there, I wonder if Dougie Howlett had been known as being arguably one of the best of all, you know, during, well, certainly he was the best at that time, one of the best at that time, but you, may, you might have found he was talked about even more so now, um, but because it was Jonah, all the headlines were Jonah rather than Dougie. Um, but yeah, great gas, great rugby player. How do you defend that? I mean, it, it, the game broke up suddenly within that sort of uh, little moment of, uh, 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 of of the match. It did break up and, you know, with people like Spencer and, and Howlett on the pitch, you, I suppose you would have been wary of it getting a little bit too broken up against New Zealand. That's exactly right. And I think what it did show is, and I'm pretty sure I remember Jono making a comment behind the post at the moment of, you know, remember who we're playing against. These guys are completely dangerous when it comes to, broken field, rugby, turnover ball. Um, and it was almost reiterating that point. And look, we've talked about this in the build-up. That's a classic example. Let's get back to what we're doing. We don't any, we're not playing hopscotchy, you know, back and forth, flipping around with our game. Let's be clinical. And I think that's what um, the key message was post, post that try. Certainly also physically as well. You can see the amount of um, hits you talked about there that, that the crowd reacting to the physical nature of, of the game did you did you feel it out there you, you talked about international rugby being slightly bit different it looks physically like it was a it was a level up yeah collisions were huge um, I remember the, the, the that physicality it was like brick walls each time you had a 
each time you had a, um, a you know a tackle or a or a breakdown, it was literally like going into a brick wall. Whereas, and I also remember that in my later career when I was against um, South Africa, there was something different about the intensity of the way that they were at rucks. And you know, I'm a young kid that probably never got particularly good at rucks. It was almost about doing a job, but they literally were ultra hard and physical. And, and that also came from us in our clear out. You know, we had to be that way no matter what number was on your back, because you had no choice. Otherwise, you're going to lose the ball. You can see also uh, Cohen and yourself looking for work. Talk to us about the the, the wing play and and the way that you were coached, obviously not just to stand and wait for things to happen. Yeah, and the point was that I think that's what Clive liked and certainly what Johnny liked, actually, is that because I used to be a, a fly half and I was signed at Gloucester as a fly half, I was very comfortable receiving the ball at first receiver. And because of that, I could slot there very, very easily. It didn't make a difference to me. I could pass off both hands. Um, and I think because of that, it just meant that England, it took, a, it took a lot of the pressure off Johnny because Johnny was the guy that created everything. And he was a playmaker and he had thousands of calls in his head for different things. And I think having one set of hands inside him from the scrum half, from Dorse to himself, almost gave him that little bit of collective, you know, gave him that moment of collective time just to work out what he was going to do. And I, I remember talking to him post-career and him openly saying to me, you know, he did enjoy playing with me because I'd do that. I'd slot in and, and give him that opportunity to, to just gather himself a little bit more for whatever the next play that was going to be. So um, Benny Cohen had almost turned up more at first receiver and run and carry because he was a big, strong lad. Whereas for me more, it was about being comfortable slotting in there and maybe, you know, trying to create something and find whichever man might be picking an angle or try and create something. You mentioned that. We'll come back to it because it, it, it does actually uh, sort of um, raise its own head a little bit later when, when, when the, 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 uh, the game unfolds. You actually create a try. And certainly against uh, Australia um, in, the, in the next game, you, you turn provider on a couple of occasions and we can see your, your ball-playing skill. But I just also want to talk about having two different types of winger. It, was that was that important? You know, you've got Ben Cohen and yourself. You know, different types of runner. You've got Dougie, Dougie Howlett and Jonah Lomu. Is is that does rugby need a, a different type of winger on on both flanks? For me, it's about your backline. I I think it does need a different type of winger. I think it needs a, you know, um, it needs to have a contrasting wing play. Unless you're going to go for lightweight backs, you're going to go for lightweight. If you're going for a lightweight, I don't know, centres, and then you can almost go heavy on the back three. Whereas if you're going to go for, I think it's all about balance. And I think if you're going to use this example here, you've got Benny Cohen, who's a big lad on one wing. You've got myself, who's more lightweight on the other wing. We play a different brand of rugby, you know, different style. Almost the same way that you've got Jonah on one wing and you've got Dougie Howlett on the other. Dougie wasn't heavy. Dougie was lightweight. And uh, whereas, you know, I think, I think having that balance throughout, the, um, throughout your backs is really important. I, I think that's even crucial these days. You know, forget just back then. I even think now when I'm looking, whenever I'm watching or doing any media stuff, I'm looking at the back line and, you know, have you just got a load of bruisers there or have you got someone that can do the flare and someone that can be the ball carrier and the decoy? Um, and that's what I'm always looking for. Because I was going to speak to you about that. I mean, it is a big point. I think actually we may have a little bit of a moment coming up here um, on this as, as England sort of build into this right-hand corner. I was going to talk about the... the you know, because there's been a lot been made and there's been news, newspaper stories recently about the fact that perhaps academies 
on missing out on ball players. And, and actually, it's going to build up here. It's a lovely sort of inside-outside double play from you and Johnny Wilkinson to put Lewis Moody in the corner and, and to put England with the chance of going back in front just before the half. And we will see it again in, 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 the, in, in, the, uh, in the replay. It's a, it's a really lovely move, mainly because it kind of happens twice. You do it, as we see here, and then Johnny does exactly the same thing. It's lovely. Yeah, and I, I think the point with that play was, again, that isn't, that isn't predetermined. That was just us reading each other. And I knew that I had, I think it was Trev coming as my decoy line. So I wanted Tim to hold that defender as well as he can. And while he holds him, I'm trying to bounce out and nick the next defender. And Johnny's hoping that I'm going to achieve the same thing then he's going to go and try and grab the next defender, which he did, giving it to Lewis, who got absolutely bashed going over the line. But I think that's the idea that you're trying to get, so that if that defender doesn't bite, or if he doesn't start to hold for a second, you've got to keep on going. Whereas, ideally, you want him to check and just create. Talk about creating two-on-ones. You might start with a six-on-five. You're trying to create then a five-on-four and work your way down to a two-on-one. And that ultimately is, what we, is, is the way that we naturally played, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, as I've mentioned before, you know, you are a ball-playing winger. You, you're not a just give it to me and I'll run fast. You, you wanted to create things. This was, was that something innate to you or was it something you worked on? Uh, well, I think that goes, that rewinds back a little bit. That, as I said before, I was a fly half signed for Gloucester um, from schoolboy. I was playing England schools at um, fly half, England 18s. But then they soon realised I was a, a, what you call a non-kicking fly half, meaning you know, my, my kicking boot was not strong at all compared to other um, fly halves. Um, I was in the age group of Ollie Barkley. So it made sense to put Ollie Barkley as your fly half that was kicking. And then why don't you put JSD as an outside centre, for example, and let him play almost like as a half bat, as a fly half, but in the outside channel. Um, and it probably helped that I had a little bit of, um, I had a bit of toe when needed. And, uh, and I think then that just developed my running game. It just shows that my natural mindset was always to run. I wanted to run the ball and, you know, give that to a winger and that type of um, mindset for a winger, then it, it suits, it fits. Did you feel that you, I mean, watching this again, this is relatively towards the start of your career, watching it, do, do, do ideas about how you developed as a player come back and, and how did you, you know, sort of improve? What were the things that you improved throughout your career, do you think? I think, I, oh, look, I think lots improved. I was very raw when I was young at this age. I was very, I was very slight. Um, you know, I was probably 70, I was probably 80 kilos here. Uh, and that's, you know, did it contribute to some of my injuries? I don't know. I think we took the view that I needed to get bigger if possible um, to be able to ride the tackles, just to be able to back up matches and, and, um, and put games together. And I think that's, that's, what, that's what I did. You know, just this is an example here of having the ability to slot into the midfield. Now, if you want to you, please don't pause it, but I should have passed that ball because uh, I remember after I remember after I remember after the game doing the analysis the next week, Clive saying, "Look, James, could you have thrown that pass to Jace?" And I was like, "Oh no, I don't think I could." And I watched it again. I was like, "Oh, he's, Clive is so right. I could. I really could." And that was the thing because I was a fly half. I had the ability to throw that left-handed pass easily. If I, it wasn't about me being greedy. It was for whatever reason I just didn't throw it. I should have thrown it, and I know that I could have made it, no problem at all, and we'd have scored with Jason with a nice try. Ah, Johnny saved your blushes, saw that there was no one home, and, and, and the up and the little cheeky chip, and he was in. But you're right, he did save my blushes, because, you know, you don't get many chances in international rugby, and I think that's one that Clive would have said to me. You know, you don't get these chances. You are fortunate that Johnny did that, 
and, uh, and and scored because that was a chance gone otherwise. And but it, but apart from the pass, the ability to be able to turn up in the midfield and have that license to do so, and Tins and Will being comfortable with us doing that, we were all interchangeable as backs. And I think that was the thing that was really healthy for this, you know, for this particular side, and it showed for the next couple of years. Can I be really sort of detail oriented and just go back to that break? I know, I know you're talking about the fact that it didn't work for you, but there was a real feel about it that was similar to the break that you made against the Barbarians. The sort of inside show, the sort of dummy, suddenly created all this space for you. Did, did, it, did it feel like that? Did you think, hang on a second, this has worked again? Well, the dummy worked again. It wasn't quite the same one, but the dummy worked. And I'm, I don't know whether something subconsciously maybe thought that I had to keep on going because I slipped when I was trying to step at the end. But as it, and I was never a greedy player. I can tell you again, if I'd have known all the time that nine times out of 10 that Jace was there, I'm not, I don't know if I couldn't remember he was being there at the time or not, but I do know had I known he was there nine times out of 10, I would have thrown that pass because I know that I'd have got as much credit for setting up a try and I'd have felt happier myself for setting, a, setting up a try than scoring it. Um, I never cared about scoring tries. I just, I cared about being involved in a try. So that one did annoy me. And that's one that I will, you know, I won't be able to scratch. Uh, but, but how did it affect you on the pitch? And, and we're just about to see Ben Cohen bursting through from a, from a ball on the ground. Again, I just really want to talk about you and your mindset there. How, how good were you at letting things go in, in the moment, in the match? I was, I was fine. I'd remember it. I'd know I'd done it. I'd know I'd, say, Mr. Chance, if, if I remember Jace coming up to me afterwards and saying, you could have thrown that, um, and, and me just, you know, being accepting it. But I think I could, ex- I knew that I'd done it, so I wouldn't forget it straight away and go, oh, I can't remember making that mistake. I knew I'd made the mistake, but equally, it wouldn't affect me. I'd just get on, you know, what's next? What's the next chance? What's the next opportunity? And, and England suddenly were able to turn the screw in this game, and, and Ben Cohen sort of almost... Uh, representing that in, in, in but by his run he was just able to exert that that sort of pressure through the gap and all of a sudden England found themselves quite away in front can you can you remember any feeling on the on the pitch as regards that sort of um that sort of that, that, that feeling of uh, we, we we got them I mean you I don't suppose you ever thought that you've beaten New Zealand but did you feel maybe you were in a controlling position no I didn't I didn't but just back to Benny's try for me, Benny's try there was almost um, cancelled out there trying the first half. You know, we talked about the way that the game can open up. You know, it kind of went ping pong. They managed to score um, from a little bit. W. Howlett scores from a bit of a ping pong. We had a very similar thing with ours. Benny gets it, manages to break away. So we've kind of felt that's the way rugby goes. That didn't feel like we had loads of luck. Um, but not for one second do we think game over. You're playing against, you know, you're playing against the All Blacks in these big games, you know, Yes, you want to have the ability to see out games, but at this moment in time, it's not a case of, yeah, we're confident we're winning this. Just to briefly talk about uh, Sir Clive Woodward, what, what was his vision and, and how did he sort of speak to people and, and, and talk to people in the England camp? Can you, can you sort of try to tell us about that? Yeah, very, very, very confidently, very positively. He was extremely positive. He was very, um, he could be critical, but his, his attention to detail was was, you know, absolutely up there with anyone I can remember as far as a, a coach concerned. Yes, he would say, let's go, go out and play. He would say, let's play. But you've got to have done all the work before being able to go out to play, if you know what I mean. You've got to have done all this. I'm talking about behaviour and the, and the teacup and the, you know, we used to do, which was very unheard of back then. We used to have um, an eye specialist to help teach our eyes to be able to work better, 
And if that was the case, you might be able to see the ball easier. You might be able to catch it easier, move. You know, he was very much about using your using the attention to detail to help you be the best you could be. And then once you'd done all that homework, then it was about, right, go and have a play, go and have a go, enjoy. He always said enjoy, um, especially to me. So that was his mindset as we watched Jonah completely hammering for another. <laughs> I was just about to say, you know, you, you talk about the fact that you had to be so defensively sure against this all-black side. And here he is cropping up in the midfield and, and as you mentioned, you know, add them to a long list of people that Jonah Loma was bumped out of the way. Yeah, and the problem, the problem you got there is, I think, was it, was it, who was it? It was um, Tins that was, yeah, it was whoever was outside Tins couldn't bite in to help him because it was still man on man on the outside. So you couldn't go, if you go two men, if you go two men bite there, immediately you've got to bite so early that he could offload that straight away or he could just chuck it over the top. So when you're three on three, you think he's probably going to carry it, but you, you know, you can't quite leave your man just yet, which is why it's, it's, it's nigh on impossible when he was like that to be able to stop him dead. He's had a runner back in you. He's five metres out. It's very difficult to stop someone that size on their, in their tracks. Um, and that was obviously the, the, the challenge that everyone that ever played against Jern Lomu found. How did defence sit within this squad? Um, was it a big part of how you thought you would win games? Because nowadays it seems as though it's very much moved into the, the forefront of people's thinking as regards good rugby is, is about getting your defence right. Was, was that the message then in 2002? Defence was absolutely massive back then. Um, Phil Larder, as I say, our defensive coach, you know, it was almost like defence came first. However, you then flick it over and you look at who's ever your attacking coaches. That's going to be, for example, um, Brian Ashton. And what would happen is the defence was treated, if it was a defensive day, it was basically a battle of the attack against the defence. And then it was an attacking day, it was the, the battle of the attack versus uh, the defence versus the attack, whatever, whichever way around. It wasn't a case of really good attack because the defence would try to treat that as a defensive exercise. So it wasn't like, oh, because it's an attacking day, the defence goes a little bit easier. And it wasn't the same the other way around. It was about, okay, if this is an attacking day, the defence is still going as hard as they can. So it was pretty even and pretty brutal on both sides in some of our training sessions. What I think is interesting watching this game, the next game against Australia, obviously they, England played incredibly well against, against South Africa. Dougie Howlett's uh, try is going to be chalked off here. He's going to be uh, called back. But what I then start to see is, 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 is this result, the one against Australia, then the games in the summer, or and the, certainly the, the great performance you put in, in, the, in the Six Nations as well, suddenly you start to see a sort of mentality growing amongst the England, uh, the England mm. players and a mentality about being able to win these sort of close-fought games. Would, would that be fair to say? Is that, is that, is that where it's growing a year out? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and sides learning how to win. How many times do you watch rugby matches and you watch sides and they just don't know how to win? And you think... Gosh, you've blown that. You've literally blown that away. Oh, I think this is uh, yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. Jonah Lomu. Uh, and yeah. you're, you're stopping because we, we're just witnessing Jonah Lomu do, unfortunately, just um, ask you to take a seat, and, and you and you graciously did. You did sit down. Yeah, yeah. He didn't. He didn't. Uh, he didn't. Basically, I didn't even put him out of a stride on that one because uh, <laughs> because funny enough, he um, he uh, he had a bit of a run, but at the same time, all that stuff I said about Phil Lada saying, "Why aren't you going to go low on his ankles?" I decided to try and go high instead, thinking he might just fall over. And funny enough, he, he opted not to. Um, and he handed me off, and I had to learn that the hard way. And then I think Phil Vickery tried to back me up and got completely bumped as well. Oh, yeah. And I think, that, I think the press went for the headline the next day, or the picture of Vicks getting put on his backside, 
rather than me getting swatted off. And had I made the tackle, Vicks wouldn't have had to have done that. So um, I owe Vicks, I owe Vicks a pint as well at that moment. <laughs> oh, and, and we're going to have a slow motion of it here as well. I mean, it, uh, it, it is. I mean, just just talk us through what you're as you say, what you're trying to think about there, the big arm of Jonah Lomu comes out and, mm. and you, you kind of know you've gone too high, but there's not really a lot that you can do about it. Well, yeah, I think, I think in that instance, either go low and try and at least slow him down enough for your support to get him, if you're just slowing him down, or you try and at least move the handoff that's coming your way. And if you can at least move it, it gives you a chance to get close to his body. Um, whereas I kind of went in there, neither or and that was that's probably made it quite an easy handoff for Jonah obviously um but I think you either go in there and you try and go low check his momentum a little bit and let your teammates do the rest or you try and at least move his arm away his big right arm fend so you can swat it away and that'll get your body slightly closer to him and giving yourself a better chance but he's you know that's an, that's an easy excuse to make afterwards. <laughs> uh, it, it must have been it, it must have been an experience in a sense, you know. And and you know, for a, for a debut, can you remember coming away from this game and it, and it was a win? Can you remember coming away? What were your thoughts coming away from this game, and and what were your immediate sort of opinions of, of how you've done? Yeah, my, my my feelings of how I'd done was fine, but not great. Um, I think I've been substituted towards the end for for Austin. Um, and my feeling was, I wish I'd have had a better game. Uh, when I saw the analysis, I wish I'd have given to Jason because I think, had I given that ball to, yeah, because there's Austin getting too tight, you see, on yeah. the defence. Um, and I think, had I given that ball to Jace, it's a great tackle in the corner by Benny Cohen. Yeah, we'll talk, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment because it's, it's an absolute, well, let's talk about it now because it, it's, it's on mm -hmm. our screen and, and we're seeing it and we get a replay of it. Uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. It, it's caused by, by an early bite in, but then just yeah. the, the, the wherewithal for Cohen, I mean, perhaps um, nowadays you look at that and you think it might be a bit high, but in yeah. that, those times, uh, and that's what I talked about when you talked about defence and, and mentality from England. There was, a, there, was, there was a growing understanding that this, you know, you never let up, you never let anything in. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And don't get me wrong, you know, there's, there's such a thin line between these, these successes and failures. And I remember Clive always saying that. Um, you know, just jumping on to the following week when we played against Australia, you know, it was a thin line in that game. That was an up and down game. There was a lot of banter in that game from the Aussies and, you know, Gregan was chirping away and whatnot. But you've got to learn to win these tight matches. And that was the difference between, this is all part of the, of the template that you mentioned earlier, of this side that goes on to win the World Cup. Learning, and the learning started back then. How do you see out a game? Catch, you've got to do your big line out, you've got to do your line out. Once you've catched and done your line out, get it off the pitch. If well, if you can, we turned it over here. But but it's having that ability and knowing how to win matches even when things are going against you and, and almost trusting each other too. Mm. It was a good win though. It ended up sort of as you say, you know, it, it solidifying a, a, a an ideology, if you like, about about this England team and, and where it was going to go. Um, you you were lined up the the following week against Australia, uh, but but not against South Africa. Uh, talk, talk us through your your thoughts on on that and 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 missing out against South Africa. Well, if you actually remember back after this game, now I I wasn't feeling amazingly well um, on the Tuesday. I think it was the Tuesday or the Wednesday, and I actually missed training. I was in bed just not feeling great. And I had to get up and do the third, I think it was the, I think it was a Wednesday training session. I had to get up and do it. Did the session, did team run Friday, played Saturday against the Aussies, had a really good game, set up a couple of tries, 
after that game, I really hit a wall, feeling terrible again. Doc took my bloods, glandular fever. So that was that was it. Straight after the Aussie game, I was sent away. I was sent home, um, and I was on the uh, on the couch for about a month, um, just trying to get over this glandular fever. And then it took me. So that was the reason I missed out on that South Africa game. And looking at the game back now, I remember it being absolutely brutal as far as physicality is concerned. Yeah. Um, so I couldn't have played through that one because I was literally knocking on death's door at that moment in time after the second game against against the Aussies. Uh, and then from then on, it took me a long time to find my my flow again and to, you know, it was all quite stop-start after that. I think, you know, trying to get back in the England jersey, other guys came in, took their chances, and I was kind of in, out, in, out. Um, you know, I never really built up a run of games, and that was kind of the, the, the way that my the rest of my international career went anyway. Have you... That sounds a, a difficult one and, and, and perhaps, a, you know, a, a personal question. But have you, have you made peace with yourself and the way that your career um, developed? Because from my point of view and from many fans' point of views, I think they'd probably term it as a little bit unfair and, and something that, that may well have taken its mental toll on you. Um, oh, look, I think, you know, I talked earlier about not living in the past now. That's the way I was on the pitch. I'd, I'd do one game, I'd remember the mistakes of the other, but I'd move on and get on with the next one. Looking back at my career, I can happily say, looking back, I wish I hadn't got 30 caps. You know, I'd have, you know, I'd have loved, I'd have loved a run of five, six games in a row. And I think some coaching staff in, in you know, the years to follow in the start of my career, some coaching staff, maybe I didn't quite get that. It was kind of come in for a game, if you didn't perform, you're out, or come in again, or then you're out. And I think I'd have loved to have had a run of two, three, four games of playing well so they could see what I was about so that if on the fifth game you didn't have a particularly great game, they still know, given the first four you've had that were good, that you then you've earned your right to have a go at the sixth or the seventh. And I think that was something I'd have, I'd have really loved in my career because I do feel that my rugby and my club was definitely strong enough to contribute to a, you know, more than I did internationally. Um, and I've learned to, have I learned to live with it? No, well, kind of, but not really, you know, because I wanted to have more. I'd have loved to have had 30 matches for my, for my country. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it would have been impossible to do so, given that I basically stopped, started and stalled my whole career internationally and still managed to make it to 10. You've always struck me as a very positive man and, and you always sound very chipper and, you know, it's, it's always great talking to you, James Simpson, Daniel, but were there ever moments of, you know, private anger and frustration at the, at the whole thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you know, you think that I'm loud and chipper. I'm actually grumpy and miserable most of the time. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I was always quite an intense type of nervous player. I was always very focused and, you know, I'd never celebrate. I was very fixed into what I was trying to achieve. I maybe played with more enjoyment, but I think that was playing with freedom and playing with flair and, and the way that I wanted to play rugby as opposed to cocky and, and cheeky. And that, that wasn't my mindset. It was more about humble, respecting those around me and, and just trying to be as good as I could be on the pitch. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I'm bitter. I'm bitter. I didn't play more, but equally talking to guys over the years, I've got a very fond memory and a very clear memory, not fond, clear memory, of Phil Vickery advising me when I was mid-career, saying, look, you can't live looking back. It does, you know, there's no points in that. You know, it's not going to work. It's just going to eat you up. Um, but naturally, that bit inside you does think, what if? You know, could it have been different? What if I'd have managed to play in a couple of those build-up matches to the World Cup? What if I was part of that World Cup 2003 squad that I missed out on by one place? Um, and that's the bit that you can't help but think. 
how did that uh, conversation manifest itself? Can you can you remember that? I should think that's a pretty painful and probably locked away in your in your psyche to a certain extent. But can you remember being told that that you weren't going to be part of two thousand and three? Yeah, I remember exactly how it happened. I I I think, funny enough, we were all told that we were going to probably find out um, the evening before. Then the phone. I think I remember waking up till God knows what time. The phone didn't ring. And then I had a voice message the next morning. So I made the call back and obviously I'd already heard the news on my voicemail. So I was semi-prepared for what, what was going to be told. And, you know, he said, but Clive said, you, you know, you've had a couple of injuries with your back. Your back's been playing up in the build-up to, to this World Cup. So I didn't get to play in the Marseille warm-up match. Um, and because of that, it meant that I, you know, I wasn't available for for as much game time, which didn't probably thrust me into selection in the in the manner that I hoped. But he said you missed out by one spot, and that was. Uh, and I remember watching the World Cup at my in-laws, the final especially, and I was cheering them on like an armchair fan all the way. And the very very last play, Johnny managed to get the ball over, and I remember thinking then, I think it was my dad texted me saying, "I know you're going to be happy, but at the same time you're going to be gutted." And he was absolutely right. I was made up that we'd won. But there was that part inside me that was absolutely devastated that I was that close to being part of that squad. How, how much solace is there? Because there was a huge amount of fondness for your game and a huge amount of, of people ready to sort of, you know, sort of refer to you as one of their favourite players, uh, you know, looking back at it, especially down in the southwest, of course. But a lot of people, a lot of neutral fans love the way that you played the game. Does, does that, that provide any solace to you? Well, it, look, it does. And I think when I, you know, just, just rewinding finally to that point in my early career, 2003, I, I talked about this whole looking back thing. I've, I've found things in my memorabilia boxes in my loft recently that I didn't realise were there. Things like Clive got as a, you know, there was a, a picture that he got as all like a collage put together because we were part of the, um, I think it was 22 home game consecutive wins starting from whatever year and finishing in, in 2000, whatever. And, he, and he's got that and, uh, you know, recently just put that on my bathroom wall and, you know, I'd, I'd forgotten it was there. 2003 Grand Slam, um, cufflinks that I'd forgotten that were in my box somewhere you know I've got my 2003 winner's medal uh, for the Grand Slam again things that you don't quite realize you're part of winning the Grand Slam you're part of this very special group because when you're going through it and you're not pausing for breath you forget you've got this stuff and uh, I've got another picture that Clive gave us as a squad with a personal handwritten note on it and you know you forget you have all these things until you look back and I, just back to your original question I think it was probably took until I retired from rugby when I realised the, the fondness that I clearly must have been fortunate enough to pick up, not just from England, but from other countries, you know, the amount of messages I got on social media. And I think that was something that struck me um, as, as, you know, respect from others and also teammates and players that I played against. And I think that's something that, that you quite, you know, you'll, you won't forget that. And that's something that when you have retired and you're moving forward with your day-to-day life, when you do start to think back to it, it does make you appreciate that. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful to step back in time with you. I know that it perhaps uh, hasn't been your favourite thing to do, but I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, uh, you know, on behalf of everyone listening, James and St. Daniel, thank you for giving us your one game at a time. Pleasure. Thanks, Sam. Um...